so God, we are grateful uh, for the fact that you are alive and at work in our lives and in our world. We believe that you are here today with something that you want to say to each one of us. So we just invite you, Lord, in this time, would you help us open up our eyes to see you and our ears to hear what you want to say to us. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing on in a sermon series where we're working through the New Testament book of Hebrews. So to get started, I want to invite you to turn with me in the Bible to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, If it would help you for any reason, there are some red Bibles in those seats in front of you. You can grab one of those and turn to the page number on the screen so that you can track along. But just a kind of a reminder, we've, we've said this each week, but Hebrews was written to encourage a group of young Christians who came from a Jewish religious and cultural background. Uh, They were experiencing some persecution. They were beginning to wonder if Jesus really was who he said it was, if following Jesus really was worth it. And the author of Hebrews writes to encourage them to not lose heart. So the letter really focuses on who Jesus is and what his life, his death, and his resurrection accomplished. And then the author uses that truth to encourage the people he's writing to 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 not give up on Jesus, to continue to hold firmly to him. And today, when we get to the the middle of chapter 10, we find ourselves at at a key point in the book. It's almost like, you know how a door swings on a hinge? This passage that we're looking at in chapter 10 is really the, the hinge of the book of Hebrews. So for the first 10 chapters, it's like the author has been laying a foundation. He's been talking about how Jesus is superior to Moses and the law that he gave and the temple and the sacrificial system and all those kinds of things. He's been talking about who Jesus is. But it's in this passage that he turns and in a really practical way starts to give his listeners, the people reading this, some practical instruction on what they need to do in light of what they've heard, of how to put that into action. It's like he's been laying this foundation and now he's going to start showing them how to build on it. And you see that transition play out actually in the very first verse, uh, very first word of verse 19. It starts out by saying, therefore. And it's like a cheesy line that I learned in seminary, but it's, it's true, it sticks with you. But whenever you're reading the Bible, you're studying it on your own. If you ever come across the word therefore, you should stop and ask yourself what that word is there for. Right? See, now you're going to remember it too. Um, but it's true, like therefore is one of those words that the author uses to try to get our attention. Like sometimes, you know, you're, you're having a conversation with somebody and you can tell they're kind of drifting, but something important is coming up and you want to get their attention, so you're like, hey, 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 you know, come back with me here. It's kind of like we get to that point in Hebrews, because Hebrews is pretty dense, and maybe at this point some folks in the audience are wandering off a little bit. And the author really wants to make sure they get their attention. So that word, therefore, is a way of communicating to the audience something big is coming. And it's also a way of saying, what I'm about to say now is directly tied to everything that I just said. Right? So everything I just said about Jesus, that's the foundation that we are about to build on right now. So what I want to do, we're going to read the passage, verses 19 to 25, all in its entirety. And then we're going to go back and just kind of walk through it a piece at a time. So here's how it starts. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how may we, we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So there, there's a lot to talk about in this passage, but basically what's going on in the first couple of verses here 
the author is kind of summarizing everything that he said in the first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews. There's these Old Testament references about the Jewish religion and the sacrificial system. So if you've been here for any of the earlier sermons, some, some of that language sounds familiar. Um, but I want to give you one other tool. When you read through this passage, like, it's obviously, there's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot going on in here. So one of the things that can be really helpful when you're studying the Bible on your own, or you're reading it on your own, and you get to a dense, complicated passage, is to try to sort of pull back from it, think, okay, is there... Is there some kind of structure to this? Is there something here that will help me sort of figure out how it's all put together? So it helps to look for maybe words that are repeated. Or maybe there are things that were commanded or asked or encouraged to do. And if you pull back from this passage and you look at it, you realize that there are actually three different things that were commanded to do. And they all begin with this repeated phrase, let us. So the first one of those, right, says, let us draw near to God. And, and seeing that repetition, that actually kind of helps you figure out what's going on in the passage as a whole. Because it turns out the first three verses are a summary of everything that Jesus has done. And then the last four verses give us three action steps that we're supposed to take. In response to what Jesus has done, here's what we're called to do. And they all begin with that let us phrase. So with that structure in mind, we're just going to kind of walk through this. So verses 19 through 21, it's kind of a summary of what Jesus did. And the, the heart of what the author is trying to communicate about what Jesus did is this idea that, that Jesus' work can give us confidence that we can approach God and have access to him. That's what's wrapped up in that idea of the most holy place. So that's actually, again, a reference back to the architecture of the Old Testament temple. So here's an, an artist rendition of what the temple was. And the text is a little small, but basically what you need to know about the temple is that there were different geographic areas in the temple, and certain people were allowed in certain parts of it. So that the outer part there is what they call the court of the Gentiles. So anybody, anybody in the world could go hang out in that part of the temple. But then from there, you would go into what was called the court of women. And only Jewish people, Jewish men and women, could go into that part of it. So if you weren't Jewish, you couldn't go to that part of the temple. Then from there, there's another courtyard that only Jewish men can go into. So women can't get any closer than that. And then from there, there's the actual building, the structure of the temple itself, which has one place in it that's called the holy place. And only Jewish priests can go in there. So only Jewish men who are priests can go into that room. And then beyond that, there's the inner room of the temple, right? What the author of Hebrews calls the most holy place. Sometimes it's called the holy of holies. And only one person, the high priest, can go into that room. And he can only go in one time during the year. And there's a big thick curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place. So once a year, after the priest would offer a, a sacrifice for his own sins and the sins of the people, could he go in? So that the picture you get with the geography of the temple is that access to God's presence was very limited because it's in that, in that most holy place, the Holy of Holies. That's where the people of Israel believed that God was physically present with his people. That's where he was. So that kind of access was really limited. But the author of Hebrews is saying that basically all of that has changed now. Right now, all of us, all people, we can have confidence that we can approach God personally and directly. And, and really, you know, as a church, we talk about how God wants every person to live the full and free lives that they were created to live. And we believe that foundational to that full and free life is, is connecting with God, is being with him. Um, so we have the confidence that we can do that. But as the author points out, the confidence that we have to, to enter into God's presence, it's not based on anything that we've done, like we're good enough, smart enough, and, you know, doggone it, people like us. No, really, it's based, as he said, that we have this confidence by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, right, that, that curtain that goes into the holy place. That is his body. 
and since we have a great high priest. Now, again, these are references to that Jewish sacrificial system. Before, it was only the high priest who could go in once a year after offering the sacrifice. Uh, but now, the author of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus has provided something better, something superior to that. That's really the key idea of this letter is that Jesus is superior to these other things. So here, he's saying that we now have access to the very presence of God. And it's not because of the blood of an animal sacrifice. It's because of the blood of Jesus, because of the sacrifice that he made. I mean, this, this is why we sang the songs that we sang today, right? That song after communion, you're here by your sacrifice, right? It's his blood that paves the way for us to have this connection to God. And because he does that, he's the new high priest. He's greater than what we have in the old sacrificial system. So that's the, the foundation. So verses 19 through 21, the author is kind of quickly summarizing everything he's talked about in the first 10 chapters of the book. But with that foundation laid, he starts then to move on to what it is that, that we're called to do and commanded to do in response to that. So there's these three commands that all begin with that phrase, let us, right? So we're commanded to draw near to God. We're commanded to hold on to the hope that we profess. And we're commanded to consider how we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. So let's just look at those one at a time, right? So the first one says this. It says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Again, this language of, you know, the, the sprinkled hearts, the bodies washed, these are references to the Old Testament system and to some of the purification rituals that the people of Israel would have to go through. But the main point that he's saying here is because of what Jesus has done, we can approach God with confidence, with the full assurance that faith brings. And whatever you do, don't let that language of let us fool you into thinking that this is just a suggestion. Like, hey, you know what? If we don't have anything better to do on Friday night, let us go to the presence of God. No, it gets translated as let us, but the, the form there in the Greek, these are commands, right? In light of what God has done, in light of what Jesus has, he's paved a way for us to have access to God. The way that we are commanded to faithfully respond is to draw near to him. That's what it looks like to faithfully respond to what Jesus has done. And, and this idea is absolutely foundational to everything that we do as a church. Like, we've already talked about, you know, we talked about how we believe that Jesus came so that every single person could meet him and live the full and free lives that we were created to live. And, and that life that we have in God, that is 100% a gift from him. It is his power, it's his work, it's his grace that does that. But we recognize that, that we have a role to play in that as well. We're supposed to draw near. And I've talked about this before, but the image that helps me the most think about it is to think about the, the current in a river. Like if you're here in the summer and you decide you want to float the Willamette River, the goal is to get out into the middle of the river. And when you're in the current of the river, you're not paddling to get forward, right? It's the current that is moving you along, right? So the goal is to get into the current. The current of the river is like God's presence and God's power. It's moving us where he wants us to go. But even though it's the current of the river that does that, we have a role to play in that, right? Sometimes you're, you're floating the river and it goes around a bend and you kind of start drifting towards the shore. So it's not up to you to paddle all the way for down the Willamette to the Columbia and out to the Atlantic. But, you know, you might paddle a little bit to get back to the center of the river, to get back into the current so that the current can carry you along. And simply, I mean, we just believe that there are certain practices and rhythms and relationships that we can choose to intentionally engage in that don't take us to the ocean, but that do help us stay connected to the presence and the power of God so that he can take us where he wants us to go. Which is why we're always trying to encourage you as a church to figure out, okay, what's, what's going on in your life? What does it look like for you right now to intentionally do things to draw near to God, to connect with Christ and the church and the community around us? 
Um, so that, that, that's, I think, what's all wrapped up in that idea, that first command, let us draw near to God. But then the author keeps going because there, there's more that we're called to do. And, and the next command that he gives us is this. He says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we professed, for he who promised is faithful. So we're supposed to draw near to God by making these intentional choices to stay connected to his power. But we're also supposed to hold on to the hope that we have. And I, I don't know what you all's experience is with this, but that's not always the easiest thing to do in this world. Because it seems like so many things in this world are really just designed at, at sort of breaking down the hope that we have and chipping away at it. But the author gives us a, a clue at how we can hang on to that. Because he doesn't say just, you know, hang on to this hope. He says we can hang on to this hope that we have because he who promised is faithful. Right? We can hang on to our hope because God has shown over and over again that he can be trusted, that he will do what he says he's going to do. And really, the point I think he's trying to make there is that your hope and trust is really only good as the object that you put your trust in. Uh, here's a, a way to think about it that might help you with this. So years ago when we were living in Oklahoma, I met a friend, a, a guy named Jerry Ostrowski. So this Jerry is number 60 there. Jerry played on the offensive line for the Buffalo Bills for like eight years. Jerry is an enormous human being. Um, uh, he's just one of the biggest people that I have ever met. And the first time we got together, we, I think we were getting together at a coffee shop, and it was one of those coffee shops where you walk in and like there's some couches over here and there's some tables and chairs over here. So I got there first, so I, I sit down at a table with a chair and you know, got our coffees and I'm waiting to meet with Jerry and he shows up and he just walks straight past me kind of glances at me and walks over and sits down in a couch and then I look over at him and he goes like this so I'm like all right so I come over and he's like sorry I'm not not trying to be rude he said but Mike when you're 6'3 and weigh 320 pounds you look at chairs differently than other people do <laughs> he says most chairs in the world are not designed with me in mind so Jerry loved sofas because couches, like he knew that a couch could handle him. So just a, a way to think about that. This is a chair from, from our house. This is actually a, a wooden chair. Uh, came from the children's home where my mom grew up all those years ago. It's a nice chair, but it's, you know, it's not the sturdiest chair in the world. So what do you think would happen if Jerry O came and sat down in this chair? That it would be, a, this chair has absolutely no chance at, at holding up Jerry. But... What do you think would be different if Jerry really believed that the chair could hold him? I mean, what if Jerry came up to this and he was like, I, you know, I, my heart is just full. It is full of trust and faith and confidence that this chair can hold me. I know it doesn't look like much, but I believe, I believe that it can do it. Well, what do you think would happen if Jerry sat down in the chair then? What would change? Nothing would change, right? I mean, this chair is still going to be crushed into matchsticks because Jerry is just too big for this chair. See, it turns out, and it doesn't have anything to do with Jerry's faith, right, or how much faith that he's got. It has everything to do with the object that he is putting his faith into. This chair is never going to hold him, no matter how hard he believes that it will. Because Jerry's trust is only as good as the quality of the chair that he puts that trust in. And that's really what the author is getting at here. The author reminds us we can hang on to the hope that we profess because of what Jesus has done, because he is trustworthy. That's really what the whole book is about. And this hope that he talks about, it's not just this like emotional, warm, fuzzy, like, oh, it makes me feel good kind of hope. We, no, it is worth it to put our trust and faith in Jesus because he is rock solid trustworthy. All right? It's because of what Christ has done. And remember, this is the second command that we have that all starts from that therefore. Therefore, because of everything that Christ has done, here's what you are called to do in response. You are called to hold on to the hope 
that you have in him to not let go, to never turn away or look for hope anywhere else. So those are the, the first two commands. Draw near to God and hang on to the hope that you have. And then the author moves on to the last command. And he says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, again, this is another command that's, that's tied to the beginning of that passage. In light of what God has done, in light of the life and death and the resurrection of Christ, one of the things that we can do uh, to live in response to that is to not give up meeting together. It's to prioritize Christian relationships where we gather together regularly to encourage each other and to spur one another on to love and good deeds. You see, so when we draw near to God, we're called not to just do that in private, although worshiping and connecting with God privately through prayer and study and listening, that's so important. But we're called to do it together as well. Uh, as one pastor put it, he said, turns out that the danger of people thinking they could be Christians all by themselves was present in the early church, just as it is today. And this verse clearly warns against that, right? The Christian life is one of those things that you cannot do alone. But we often try to do that. Um, we need each other. We need to be around each other and in each other's lives if we're going to spur one another on. And, and that community, those connections, those relationships, that can take place in a lot of different ways, right? It doesn't always have to be here on Sunday morning. It can be getting together with coffee. It can be conversations that you have camping with friends. It can be outside the walls of this church. But one of the things that the author very clearly does have in mind is people gathering regularly, weekly, for a corporate worship service. Now, again, think back to the, the original audience and the situation that, that they're in. Because I don't know about you all, but like I, I got a judgmental streak in me. So when I read this passage, it says, you know, don't give up gathering together. And I'm like, oh, those wuss Christians back then, like, they're probably just lazy. That's not, they're not showing up. You know, there's something wrong with them. But, I mean, really think about it. They may have had some really good reasons for not getting together. It may have been hard to do that. Like, they were being persecuted. In fact, the very next passage after this talks about the persecution and the hardships that they had undergone. So maybe they were hesitant about gathering together because it's a lot easier to escape persecution if you don't get together. You know, if people bust into your service to start messing with people, it's just a lot safer if you're not there. So they may have had some good reasons for not gathering. And, and today we've got other reasons for not gathering for Sunday, some of which are, are legitimate reasons as well. But there's a danger here that the author of Hebrews is trying to make us aware of. Every Christian needs the encouragement of other Christians. And every Christian who walks through the door of a worship gathering, just by their very presence, they are an encouragement to the other people who are there. They're, they're visible reminders that we're not alone. And, and that's for me, when I talk to people, when they, they talk about what's hard about living the life of faith in our valley, right, in the location that we're in, they talk about going to school and feeling like I'm the, I'm the only follower of Jesus in my class or I'm the only Christian I know in the office. So just, just gathering together, just looking around the room and seeing that there are other people here who are following hard after the same God, it's an encouragement to us to remember while I feel alone most of the time during the week, I'm really not alone. And obviously when we're together in person, like we can actually say things to encourage each other. It's why we ask you guys to stick around after the services, to spend time. We can encourage and spur one another on out there in the lobby. But we need to remember too that just being together can be an encouragement. Right? In a world where we often feel alone in our faith, coming together for a service, seeing that there are other people in the room is a reminder that we're not alone. Praying together, uh, whether that's with people after the service in the prayer room, or whether it's, you know, like in the kind of corporate prayer that Kim just led us in. 
There's so much value in that. It's an encouragement to us, right? Singing together, when we take the, the words of the songs and the ideas, we lift them up, we hear the voices of other people around us, that can be an encouragement to us as well. Um, listen to how one pastor, Michael Kruger, described it. He says, you need someone to stoke the fire in you, to keep you on the right track, to help you get up when you don't want to, and to shake you occasionally and tell you to get it together. You need to be part of a team with teammates who will help encourage, push, rebuke, and love you, and whom you can help encourage, push, rebuke, and love. Right? The original audience to Hebrews needed that. But we all need it too. I need it and you need it too, right? If we're going to stick with Jesus, if we're going to hold on to the hope that we have and not give up on him, if we're going to keep moving forward in our faith. Right? Again, Jesus came so that every person can be fully alive in him, which is why we're always, as a church, we're encouraging you to, to look at your own life, to see where you are, to evaluate, okay, what's going on right now and what are the, the relationships that I can invest in? What are the activities or the practices or the rhythms that I can engage in that, that can actually help me stay connected to Christ, actually help me stay connected to other people in the local church? And today I want to highlight just one opportunity to do that that's coming up. So not, not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday on the 22nd at 6.30 here in the sanctuary, we're going to have an Ash Wednesday service. Now, depending on the, the church tradition that you come from, you may or may not be familiar with services like this, but at its core... The service is really just an opportunity to do the things that Hebrews 10 commands us to do, right? It's a chance to draw near to God. Uh, the service is a mixture of singing and scripture reading and silence and space and time to reflect and to meditate on the hope that we have in Christ because of what he did on the cross, right? On Ash Wednesday, we're invited to remind ourselves of the deep need that we have for God. Uh, during the service, you'll have a chance, if you choose to do so, to come forward and one of the pastors here at the church will just make a simple cross on your forehead out of ashes. And it reminds us that on our own, we're dead without Christ. It reminds us that if Christ hadn't done all of the things that the book of Hebrews has been talking about, we would still be lost. And then after that, there'll be a chance for that pastor to pray for you. Pray for you by name. There's such power in that. And you'll have an opportunity then to take communion, reminding you that God will always be available to meet you in your need and in your brokenness, that his life and his spirit can sustain you in this world. A service like this is a chance to do what Hebrews 10 says, to, to, to draw near to God, to hold on to the hope that we have, and to encourage each other as we gather together. So if you've never been to an Ash Wednesday service before, or if you think, I think that's kind of what the church is, like that wear robes and do that stuff, and it's just this rote tradition, like that may be what you think, that's what I used to think. But if so, I just would like to encourage you to look into it some. In the e-newsletter that went out, there was a link to a short teaching I did on this a few years back. It's just an opportunity to hear more about it. Um, but I would encourage you to really consider coming. Again, there's nothing magical about a service like this. But it's just one more opportunity that Suburban is providing to help us find ways to draw near to God, to hold on to the hope that we have, and to encourage each other and keep gathering together. Um, so we're going to close out our time. I want to invite you to pray with me, and then we're going to sing a, a final song to wrap up our time before we go. So would you pray with me? God, I'm, I'm just so grateful. Uh, man, I am so grateful for all that you are doing in our life and in and through this church. Um, just, just to see the joy on the faces of people on Friday night, the, the joy of family members just watching their loved ones be celebrated and, and lifted up. Uh, it, what a privilege, God to be called to be a part of what you're doing in the world. We're so grateful for that. 
God, I don't pretend to know what everybody in this room needs to hear from you today, but I absolutely know that you have something that you want all of us to hear. Uh, for some people who are here today, Lord, maybe they've, they've never taken you up on your offer to draw near to them in the first place, um, to find forgiveness in you, to take it, the full advantage and effect of the work that your life and resurrection has done in this world. And God, if that's the case, just in these moments as I'm praying and as we're responding in song, I just pray that they would reach out to you, that they would surrender the lordship and the leadership of their life to you, that they would ask for your forgiveness and, and that you would come that you would come and you would fill them with your spirit and you would show them what it looks like to truly live a full and free life in you. God, others of us who are here, uh, some of us are, are the hope that we're holding on to, we've, we've got both hands on and we're holding on strong. And for others of us, we've really wrestled with hope this week. Uh, it's, it's hard sometimes to keep on to hope when we live in a world where, where so many things seem to go wrong so often. And God, if we're here this morning and we just need our faith to be encouraged, would, would you open our eyes to the fact that, that our faith doesn't work because of the size of it or the depth of it or the emotion associated with it. Our faith works because you are faithful. We can hold on to hope because you are trustworthy. Would you just fill us with that confidence of knowing that, that you're not a rickety chair, that you're the sofa that can hold us no matter what. And God, for all of us, just help us know what it looks like to stay connected to you, to your presence because that's what it's all about, God. I, I have no illusions that a week from now anybody is going to remember or the points of this sermon or anything like that. But God, you are here. And if we can have an honest encounter with you, if we, if we meet you today, if we hear from you the words of life that we need to hear, God, that will mark us and carry us forward. So Lord, just when, as we sing this song, we're doing what the author of Hebrews did. We're going back to the Old Testament to a, a blessing that the, the priests used to say over the people of Israel as they would depart at the end of the service. But God, some of the words that have been added to that blessing, they remind us that, that you are with us. You go before us. You are all around us. God, would you help us know that you're here? And would you speak to each one of us? That is what we desperately need. Come, Lord Jesus. Our ears are open. Tell us what we need to hear.